This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 8. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part eight, the Shiraz Festival Complexities. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts one through seven of this series that have already been posted. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 8. Well, any meditation on the arts and culture of modern Iran in the 20th century would surely have to include the Shiraz Festival of Arts. Even those who are not arts aficionados will likely have heard of an event that has taken on a mythical kind of status as time has passed. The Festival of Arts was an annual international summer arts festival held in Iran in the city of Shiraz and Persepolis from 1967 to 1977. Its overriding stated mission was to be a meeting place of the performing arts of the Eastern world with those of the West. Accompanied by symposia and debates, the festival program included music, dance, drama, and film performed in various locations in Shiraz and surrounding areas. It was an initiative of Shahbanu Farah Pahlavi. But the Festival of Arts became much more than a benign platform for arts and culture. When it launched, there was little precedent for an international arts festival of its kind anywhere in the world. 
It was lauded for its innovation, but the festival also played a transgressive role. And while it began as a forum for works and performances that were considered radical and socially or politically liberal and controversial, by its final year, the Shiraz Festival itself had become a lightning rod for contested symbolism, decadence, accusations of elitism, ideological debate, boycotts, the monarchy, and the very nature of Iran itself. With the coming of the revolution in Khomeini, the festival was shattered forever. What was it about the Festival of Arts that has inspired such a paradox of emotions from nostalgia and pride to controversy and debate? My feature guest today is an Iranian-British art historian, curator, writer, and advisor who's focused his sights on telling the story of the Shiraz Festival of Arts in recent years. Vali Mahluji is a director of the Kaveh Golestan Estate, a member of the Art Dubai Modern Advisory Committee, an independent advisor to the British Museum, and the founder of Archaeology of the Final Decade, a nonprofit curatorial platform. Through the AOTFD, Vali has worked with art institutions across the globe, such as Tate Modern, the Smithsonian, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Paris Museum of Modern Art. He's been a regular presence as a lecturer at international institutions such as Goldsmiths University, Stanford University, Yale, the Asia House, the Asia Society Museum, and has frequently contributed essays and publications to major institutions around the world. In the last 15 years, Valley has researched and written extensively on the Shiraz Persepolis Festival of the Arts and has become something of a go-to expert on the festival and all of its cultural, economic, and political dimensions. He also has a book coming out about the festival. But first, right now, Vali Mahluji joins me from London, England today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jian. Very pleased to be here. It's it's very nice to have you on the program. Thank you very much for doing this. It was about 15 years ago, as I understand it, that you started researching, writing, talking about the Shiraz Festival of Arts. You've described what you did as breaking the silence about the festival. Um this is interesting. I mean, I want, I want to get into all the complexities of what the Shiraz Fest was, but on the face of it, why would an arts festival be shrouded in silence decades after its last run? Yes, it's the biggest, it's the very big central question, both around Shiraz, but also in a larger sense around much of what was severed in 1979, our connection, our cultural connections through that fault line, the festival presented itself as one of the most highly contested spaces that I've come across. Its artistic territory, really despite the passage of almost half a century, remains remarkably contested, especially amongst Iranians. And after the Iranians, amongst intelligentsia in America, which is also very interesting. Contested meaning that the festival itself was a subject of debate. The festival became not only a subject of debate, but it was, in a sense, if I want to put it reductively, condemned by various attitudes and cultural positions, but as well as political ones. It became, it was, in fact, it's, it sounds ludicrous, but it was, by some people, it was blamed for the very Iranian revolution, for the very, as a very cause, as a cause of the Iranian revolution. I mean, on the face of it, it does sound ludicrous because it's an arts festival. Breaking the silence suggests that 
it was taboo. Are you saying it was taboo to even talk about the Shiraz Arts Festival until recently? Yes, I think we can think about it like that. But it's the why that um, is important because there was a fatwa against it delivered on the 28th of September 1977. Now that's a year and a half before the establishment of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's very early and it's, if you think about it, it's why would a festival of arts, a, f- a performance festival that was really around music, dance, drama and um, theatre mainly, why would that attract such huge weight to itself, such sure. gravity yeah. that there would be an, a fatwa by the very Ayatollah Khomeini? It's it's remarkable stuff. Let's get into it. I mean, with that, with the stage is set. Uh, um, by the way, I mean something you've written about parenthetically that I think is is really apt and important here as well is that the Shiraz Festival of Arts was something that happened in the moment. It's not like a song or a recording or a piece of art that hangs on the wall or even a building that we can visit and see. It's not tactile. In other words, how do we preserve something special and cultural but ephemeral, an event that is not a tangible art object that can be put inside a museum for us to see? It only becomes about memory and then people telling stories about it, right? Yes, that's right. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. Many histo- art historians have looked back at the um, Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art, which was set up um, towards the end of this era in 1977, but also attracted controversy uh, for being the wrong thing at the wrong time, wrong money spent for the wrong reasons. But when we look back, both the state in Iran and also the artistic community in Iran, when we look back, we are very proud and very protective of this space because it's not only um, the material object is there, but actually there is material value stored. I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars stored there. Now, in Shiraz, what interested me was that the object, as you said, was ephemeral. So uh, So the art object is what happens in the event. And this, the two things about this, one is that there's no monetary value to this. But also, um, that's what made it dangerous then, in fact, because performance is in itself inherent in performance, which is a live act. And the fact that the artistry or the art event is the event itself is potentially highly provocative. Right. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. And throughout human history, in fact, performance has been very much for subversion, for the erotic, for purging of uh, anxieties, for um, unraveling the gods, for turning power over its head, all over the world. Performance, inherent in performance, is that kind of subversion. But I, I, I want to get back to the, the fatwa later in this uh, interview because, I, it, you know, it's remarkable stuff. It's to say, you, I don't even want you people thinking about this. <laughs> right? Uh, you can't own it. You can't put it in your house. You can't look at it. It's gone. It's an event that happened. I don't even want you talking about it. I mean, this is, uh, um, it's, it's, as I say, it is fascinating. Take us, take us back to the beginning of this. Give us some context for how this festival was founded. So as I understand it, you know, in the final decade of the Shah's reign, Iran increasingly provides a home, you might say, for the flowering of um alternative music, electronic music, the avant-garde arts. 
uh, an officially sponsored arts festival becomes part of this. What did the Shah Banu want to do? Well, um, I think the I think the arts festival is like the Timo Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art. The two of them are the international pinnacles of a very vast and um, expansive cultural program. So state-sponsored museums, um, festivals, and also archival projects. So we are talking about a very transformative period in um, in that respect, economically as well. Not to mention national and, Iranian uh, radio and television too, right? Yes, and the establishment of the national Iranian radio and television is really important in the foundation and the formation of the festival because indeed it wasn't the Ministry of Culture but it was directly the National Iranian Radio Television that was the sponsor and the creator of the festival, in itself very important. So the NIRT was under the um, emancipated leadership of Reza Otbi, and um, the festival enjoyed a large degree of, of uh, sort of liberal space being under the NIRT rather than the um, Ministry of Culture. It would be the equivalent of the BBC in the UK uh, setting up such a huge um, international festival. So let, let me take this one step at a time. So first of all, um, curiously, I mean, for me, I, I you know, I, I hear Shiraz is a cultural place, etc. But but it's it's curious to me that it wasn't in Tehran. It was it was in Shiraz and amongst the ancient ruins of Persepolis. Right. Why? Um, well, actually, diversifying and moving away from Tehran was um, one of the central ideas of the. Um, original conceivers of the um, festival. Let me also add here that um, the Shah Banu was the patron of the festival. Many might have found that quite strange, but I live in the UK and Queen Elizabeth II is a patron of the Edinburgh Festival. I think she stepped down, if I'm not wrong, recently. Hmm. Um, so the patronage of the Shah Banu created a very particular environment whereby, as some artists for example, in this case, Bijan Safari, the late Bijan Safari, told me it was as if one of us had suddenly become queen. So there was suddenly an opening, a direct kind of line of communication to the office of the Shah Banu. And I think we have to credit the Shah Banu as a great uh, and modest facilitator of such huge sort of leaps that led to the production of something like the festival. On the other hand, why, what I always think is very important is not to undermine the very progressive and very interesting group of practitioners from theatre and film um, and literature who were involved in conceiving these projects. Mm. For example, if I name a few, Reza Ghotbi himself, as I mentioned, who was the director of the National Radio Television, uh, Farouk Ghatfari, who had just come back from Iran, having worked at the Cinematheque Française, Khojasi uh, Kia having come from training at the Old Vic in theatre. And beyond them, there are scores of important and interesting people, Dr. Um, uh, Farhat, Dr. Safat, um, Fozier Majd, Bijan Safari, the younger generation like R.B. Ovanesian, who are instrumental in making this, in, in moving this big machine in the direction that it moved in, which is 
very important, and we'll talk about but, that. But when you say the younger generation, I mean, one of the things, I've, I've made this point a couple of times now in this series, what, especially when we're talking about the uh, cultural initiatives of the 60s, like like Kanu and like uh, the, the Shiraz Festival uh, and the Shah Panu. Um, you, you know, when you use the analogy of Queen Elizabeth, um, you know, we, we think of Queen Elizabeth now in, in her 90s, you know. Uh, uh, these folks, Shah Panu and, and the folks creating this stuff were really young at the time, right? I mean, th- these are, these are people in their 30s or, or 20s. This is not a top-down sort of um, initiative of the elders, is it? Well, uh, absolutely. It is young, um, but it is also in response to um, a huge amount of, uh, of knowledge and experience that is also returning to Iran, which is not only the case of Iran. But all these, a lot of these people we're mentioning have had exposure internationally, right. have had training internationally, and right. they're coming back to serve their country. I should yeah. just mention the, the the flag on the play when we talk about this being an initiative of, of the Shah Banu, of Queen Farah. Uh, this becomes, I mean, you know, depending on your perspective, um, very problematic or heartbreaking in the sense that. It is her very involvement. It is the fact that this is state-sponsored by the Pahlavi uh, dynasty that becomes the problem. It becomes the lightning rod for the Shiraz Festival by the 1970s. So it's ironic that she's at the forefront of spawning something that, and and she herself becomes one of its biggest um, albatrosses, right? Yes, I think... um I think it would be good as Iranians to move beyond the kind of mythologies that we work around individual people. I think the contestation went far beyond um, the person of the Shah Wanu. Uh, the religious sort of denunciations, they we have to understand them as we look back today, that they condemned the very nature of the performing arts, especially within a modern public context, because Shiraz was actually pu- pushing performance into the street. It wasn't happening at Talari Rudaki. It wasn't happening at the Opera House. So the religious denunciations, we have to understand, they they had interest in, in condemning the art itself, mm. especially when it went public, mm. right? But also, I think um, the political environment of Iran was very radicalized, and there were dogmatic standoffs after what had Iran, it, it, Iran had gone through and in the context of the Cold War. And even though we have to pay homage as well to all the poets and writers and a lot of intellectuals who had left-leaning political views, but it is also true, and it's very tragic, I think, that they failed in their dogmatic position mm-hmm. to realize, and they didn't realize either the transcendental utopianism or the cosmopolitanism of Shiraz, let alone the fact that it was bringing to the fore mainly artists from Asia and Africa. And it was, in its own way, rising to the demands of a new world and a new world order to reflect a post-colonial moment. Okay, let me this, let me this, let me come back to the contested yeah. part. I, I jumped ahead. I shouldn't have. I, I was simply trying to make a point that that of course I understand that we should move past the mythology about events in history only being about one person, but. In this case, the truth is the Pahlavis were lightning rods, for better or worse. There was a revolution that happens partly based on the existence of the monarchy, so we cannot really ignore that either. But but having said all of that, it is fascinating to me that the foresight or the, the interest that this group of people have, the folks you've just talked mm-hmm. about, the founders of the Shiraz Festival, in saying, we're going to recognize where Iran is, 
Um, I mean, if not entirely geographically, spiritually in the middle of East and West. And we're going to try to do something international here. I love this. And I, and I was thinking about how for that moment, this is, this is far ahead of their time. The, as I understand it, there were two main goals. One, to have local artists share a platform with other cultures, presumably international stars, etc. And two, to expose creative Iranians to the, current, the cultural currents of other countries. So in terms of meeting those goals, how effective was the internationalism of the festival from the get-go? Interestingly, I think that um, the success of the festival internationally is reflected in the very fact that internationally, uh, there is very little doubt that the festival was one of the most successful crucibles of artistic creativity that allowed experimentation across cultures and, you know, interculturally. There is very little doubt about that. It's the Iranian sort of political and sociological uh, space that still has struggled. I think that's changed a lot because the the breaking of the silence that um, you mentioned is because in the very beginning, it was very difficult for me to approach people around this project. But now I do see a shift even amongst the kind of colleagues um, that I've worked with who have decided to change position, to change tact around this. And this is really coming from the fact that it's true that the Shiraz Festival and the work that the Shah Banu was heading across these different institutions, including the festival and the incredible input of the Iranian thinkers and artists and historians themselves, was really creating a huge amount of respect internally for Iranian arts. So this, the, the amount of work that Shiraz did for uh, emancipating and oxygenating the space in Iran to allow the artists to assume an important social role is undoubtable. And internationally, of course, it did something massive. They brought, I mean, it, it managed to create an alliance between Asian and African performers and a very particular set of internationally fluid artists who were escaping the rigidities of their own traditions. And they were the avant-garde and the experimentalists, the neo-avant-garde of the 50s, 60s and 70s, who are not giants in their own rights, in their own cultures. But we have to remember, they were very peripheral and marginal at the time in their own spaces, including the great and big Merce Cunningham, for example. So, I mean, uh, just on a grassroots level, thinking about this, um, as a as a musician who was in a group uh, myself that that very much was a festival kind of uh, band, so uh, I, I did everything from you know big Irish festivals in New York to to folk festivals to 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 the WOMAD in London or whatever, and and any musician listening to this right now or any artist for that matter who's been involved in an arts festival knows that theater festivals, book festivals, festivals of authors, it's not necessarily what happens on stage that's the magic although that um, that exists it's the cross-pollination it's the it's it's what you're doing backstage and meeting folks from around the world or or jamming uh, late at night or or exchanging ideas um, that fosters all of this this new creativity and so yeah. The fact that suddenly this thing lands in in the middle of Iran, in the southern part of Iran, that um, where there's folks coming in from international areas, there's folks coming in from from different parts of Iran, and they're all thrown together, um, mm. 
it, it couldn't help but create some kind of creative flowering, right? Yes, in, indeed. In fact, um, speaking to artists like Gordon Moomer, for example, in America, the musician, um, he readily claims that Shiraz was singularly the most interesting space for people like him to visit. Also, I think we can romanticize a bit here. It would be nice to, to also understand that uh, the performances are happening sometimes under a kind of cosmic galaxy of stars. They're happening across, you know, backdrops of you know, open plains uh, outside Persepolis with you know, deep blue skies and these kind of mysterious monumentality of the of the um, of the space itself, the architecture of the space itself, the ruins, I mean, and the epicness of it all. Anybody who works in theater or perhaps in, mu in, in, in music like yourself would understand that that you can't exchange yeah. that for a black box. You <laughs> yeah. can't exchange that for a simple stage. So we have to understand that whilst the use of those, the, the space, especially Persepolis, had obvious romantic and um, nationalistic overtones, this is, this is transparent, but at the same time, there was something extremely magical. And of course, we must understand that a lot of uh, performances were happening in the streets of Shiraz, in the gardens of Shiraz, so it wasn't just Persepolis. And across art forms, too. It's not just a music festival or, or just a poetry festival or just a theater festival. It's all of those things, right? We have poetry um, and painting happened um, a couple of times in the beginning, but the festival really kind of tightened its, um, its definitions and its ethos very beautifully. And it's, it's just, um, it takes a lot to get your head around it. Yeah, and I think the yeah. big thing to talk about is the courageous optimism with which that energy of the creators of the festival and the programmers of the festival charged ahead, knowing and believing that we can emancipate, we can shake the old tree and expect that the best of the fruits will stay and the what's rotten we can do away with. Speaking of shaking the old tree and, and, doing, and doing something different, um, this isn't just transplanting the biggest stars from the biggest uh, international cities uh, to do gigs in Shiraz. I mean, the curatorial approach of crossing ideological, political, economic lines, one of the things that blows me away is, is hearing that over three quarters of the events, over three quarters of the events were devoted to productions and performers from the developing world. Uh, yeah. You know, mo you wouldn't see that today probably because there wouldn't be enough of, a, of an economic incentive. You can't make enough money doing that, you know? But just the idea that somebody said, you know what, we're gonna reach beyond Paris and New York, we're gonna bring them to, but we're gonna, we're gonna make this a space for productions from the developing world. What a beautiful idea. Yeah, I have always emphasized what you just um, quoted there, the three quarters, because I wanted to play against this elitism or even worse, this West toxication, which was very much another label that was um, aggressively attached to the festival, West toxication, which of course links to a huge amount of um, political thought that was happening in the 60s and the 70s in Iran, which is a huge area to explore in itself. But actually, that's why I've counted uh, the from the 311 events that I counted some few years ago, s 60 of them were just Iranian classical and traditional music, just Iranian classical and traditional music. And the biggest number of performers who performed at Shiraz were Iranians. And the second biggest number of performers, you would never guess where they came from. They were from India. 
And after that, we have um, France, the US and Poland. Oh, this is really interesting to understand that it wasn't so much East and West in an Orientalist construction, but actually there was the Eastern Bloc. So we had performers from all the communist countries coming. And um, to bring performers from all those countries to the festival in Iran was a huge political endeavor in itself, because you had to go from the Iranian Foreign Service to the Polish Foreign Service, get them to agree to their artists to be allowed to leave their country on an exit visa, mm -hmm. probably arrive with some intelligence officer to Iran. So you can imagine the kind of Cold War backdrop across which this festival had to be administered. The administration of the festival in itself across the political divides was already a huge endeavor. Right. You know, when you talk about the programmers being so courageous, um, mm. it also means they're making decisions where, you know, just the, the very nature of being courageous means you're going to do something that some people are not going to like. And this, this is where the beginnings of the dissent and, and the, the contested nature of, as you've said, uh, of the Shiraz Festival starts to happen. I mean, the, the programmers, the ideas were unequivocally alternative in terms of my reading of this. I think the curation was alternative. Nobody, nobody's booking the Beatles at their peak here. This is, this is interesting and, and not all very populist or popular. In fact, there was growing criticism that the tastes of the festival were too avant-garde or elite. Tell me about that desire that the, the founders and the programmers had to provide a disavowal of the status quo. It was a, an optimistic and courageous and emancipated attitude that we need to put ourselves and our cultural and artistic reality as a history and as a geography um, under strain or in, let's say, in kind of conflict with itself and with its surrounding in order to find breakthroughs. So any form of breakdown would also produce forms of breakthrough. This already needs a very courageous attitude. And But we are talking about a world which has had civil rights movements and gay movements and feminist movements, the Algerian Revolution, 1968, Paris. So we are living in a world of alternatives already, right? So the practitioners in Iran are not living in a bubble away from the real world. They are in contact with an international arena of happenings. So um, we have to put it both in an international and a national context. But nevertheless, this is why the Ministry of Culture was not, you know, initiator of such a project, mm. because there you would have more traditional ideas, more bureaucracy, and dare I say, uh, a bigger grip from the um, intelligence services. And I have to also add that the intelligence services, uh, this is really interesting, in spite of uh, the patronage of the Queen, the intelligence services themselves are very, very weary of yes. the Shiraz. The, yeah. we, we start to get into all these these contradictions, all these paradoxes that exist with, with Shiraz. I, I, I mean, I am really interested in your thesis, your, your idea that the festival became or was a contested space, as you've termed it. Mm. So, while it was created, for example, with the blessing of the Pahlavi monarchy, it's giving oxygen to progressive voices that are the very people in Iran at that moment who are steadfastly anti-regime. That's an obvious mm. paradox. How did it play out? Well, I think the NIRT itself was already a liberal space um, compared to other spaces. And I think what I 
what the kind of research I tend to want to do or I aim to um, aim for is really to not find, uh, not to resolve really, really the contestations, but to complexify the space of, of contestation. I, I prefer to think there is never a monolithic reality. Uh, there's never a one statement and one narrative. In fact, Iran of today is much more a victim of a kind of totalizing project or a totalitarian sure. I, you know, idea of what we ought to be. However, um, the, a space like the Ministry of Culture would have been under just uh, under a kind of tighter grip. And uh, it would take individuals like um, Reza Otbi and in fact, Shahzad Afshar, also um, who um, is married to Reza Otbi, but she was very important in the festival, especially in these areas of music. People like these people and Khoja Zekian, Farouk Afari and Bijan Safari, these people were very emancipated people and they could take risks and those risks were obviously allowed. Now, it doesn't mean that um, we, we don't understand that within the straight state apparatus, the, the fact that there was weariness would, for example, fuel criticism. The criticisms that would be published in the newspapers were often actually fueled from within the established order. So there was conflict coming at or contestation coming at the festival from all directions. And anyway, how can I put it? Who was it? George Bernard Shaw, who said, progress depends on the unreasonable man. So I think the fact that the curators were artists, filmmakers and theater practitioners already set the scene. They were not managers. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to digest a lot of what you're saying and, and, and try to uh, to hear it in in sort of simple terms. I, although you've you've said the part of your mission is to complexify things, so so I, I don't know if I'll be successful in trying to simplify this. But I mean, uh, I don't. I, I feel like you eluded the question a little bit. That they, there's a major paradox here, which is that mm -hmm. that this is the initiative of the state. The state is a monarchy. It's um, whether it's an authoritarian monarchy or whatever people want to call it, uh, or or a, a golden monarchy then it launches this festival that becomes the incubator or mm. the, the, well, the stage like for people who are against the, the monarchy to, to do their stuff, right? I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think, I think the question is when you say um, that um, it's initiated by the monarchy, there's a problem there because the artists and the theater and filmmakers that I'm talking about, they're not the monarchy. Right. No, the festival is not initiated by the monarchy. That's a kind of wrong, already wrong footing. The festival is initiated by a group of very emancipated artists with the patronage of the Shaponu. But who is it funded by? The state, right? The national radio and television. Which is the state. Which is the state. Right. But it's not, but it's, 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 uh, <sighs> Okay, but all museums are built. I mean, well, exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. State, I mean, it's not. Know, it's no different from somebody yeah. going on the BBC and saying BBC sucks. We should shut down the BBC. It's also a paradox. Mm -hmm. The BBC is funded mm -hmm. by the government, and so and it creates that space for people to do that. So I, I I'm, I'm simply yeah. um, pointing yeah. that out. But I, it's not irrelevant where the where that this is state sponsored because that becomes part of the issue, doesn't it? I mean, by the mid 1970s, international artists begin boycotting the festival. Why? Why, why were they boycotting the festival? Well, um, this is why I think looking at the um, political sociology of Iran is important because Iran is in the grips of 
a kind of a reversal, isn't it, uh, already from the beginning of the 70s. There's an oil crisis. And before that, there is already the crisis of leftist violence, which in return um, galvanizes and, um, and kind of promotes a very aggressive um, intelligence service react reaction to it. So uh, the people who boycott the um, festival, they do not boycott it because it has royal patronage. They boycott it because precisely because of the political tension in Iran, and they decide to side with um, those who oppose an autocratic system, uh, autocratic political system. So the boycott is very particularly linked, specifically linked not to patronage, but to um, an autocratic repression. system. What they what they view as an autocratic repression, right. repression, right? Political repression. In fact, Khodjasekia herself, one of the founding members, um, she resigns from the festival. Because of state repression. Yes. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I mean, that's not, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we know that that happened. And, and so there's going to be left wing or, or, you know, artists who are also activists who are going to say, I'm, I'm not playing the gig. But I, th but I think that's, that's not irrelevant. I mean, that's, that's part, part of, as you say, the, the festival is, after a while, seems to be getting it from all sides. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's and it's because of the the this complex space of paradoxes, an artistically liberated zone within what's perceived as an autocracy by some, a celebrator of Iranian traditions during an era of westernization. I mean, in a way, it was too ambitious, maybe, to try and pull all this off. Um. Well, I think I think it was um, innocently optimistic vision that allowed the festival to be thin on the ground. And what I mean is to allow the performances to happen in public spaces, in nature, in bazaar, saray moshir, in streets. Once you open up uh, the art expression in that sense, innocently into the public realm, you are going to allow all kinds of reactions to it. Mm. We don't do that most often. Yes. Art yes. is saved within the sanctities of concrete buildings and huge monuments, and it's really for the initiated. So um, the optimism uh, with which Shiraz goes ahead is part of its ethos to break down the barriers to actually be a people's form of art. We also have to understand that the, a lot of the artists coming from Asia and Africa are coming from spaces which are small towns and villages. Yeah. There are traditional forms that belong to the people, right? So it's a very complicated idea. But let me just say this. If the revolution hadn't happened, this controversy would not have happened around Shiraz. Oh, really? So, because the the controversy is is building in and around the con the, the contested space <laughs> is is existing in the nineteen seventies before the revolution really catches winds, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is. Uh, do you think that would have ended? It would have. Uh, well, there would have made it past that. Well, exactly. There were a lot of contestations, right? So there was a radical standoff before the revolution in Iran, for sure. However, um, the festival was a very very easy target because of his emancipated nature, because of his experimental nature, because of the fact 
that performance in itself is subversive and dangerous yes, in itself yes and ephemeral the object doesn't exist so you can throw any mythology yes. at it as you will yes right so that's what i'm saying so it can become a f f as a as a sort of a weak um, or a stigmatized object it becomes a very good vessel for that kind of mythology to endure that's what i mean if a revolution hadn't happened meaning that there would be uh, the festival would have evolved in itself. It would have changed, like everything would change. It would have adapted in any ways that it had to, etc. But the severance that happened, and the fact that the fatwa was was uh, already bestowed upon the festival, uh, meant that it became a very easy target. So by the mid seventies, mm -hmm. um, in terms of other folks who've written about the Shiraz Arts Festival, people have written about the fact that it seemed to have lost some of its sheen. It was there was internal debate about the programming. Um, there was uh, controversy. Um, there was there were some boycotts. Um, what what can you say about where the Shiraz Art Festival of Arts had gotten to by say seventy five seventy six? I think to answer that question, we have to look at how first it arrived at a high point around 1970-1971, which is that it went through um, a kind of maturation whereby it understood very, very quickly uh, and in a kind of very ingenious way that you can't easily put various art forms from various parts of the world produced at various uh, eras um, on the stage without some kind of a thematic arrangement. So by 1969, the festival came up with this amazing idea of music as percussion and rhythm. Mm, yeah. And by doing that, they allowed African and Asian performers who were very advanced in especially percussion to produce work on stage, which was of such high quality that it could stand for itself. And then this flows over into 1970, where theater and ritual is proposed, again, where you can have archaic and um, traditional performances by 1971, a huge production called Orgast um, is conceived that happens through huge amount of experimentation in Iran itself across um, various uh, spaces in the landscape. Now, by 1972, the festival then I think it kind of looks at how transmission of knowledge is happening from Asia and Africa to Eastern, Western Europe and America, inviting all the, a lot of the avant-garde uh, to come and perform next to, for example, Indian Katakali. So there is a reversal transmission of knowledge where the Europeans and Americans are looking to learn from Zen Buddhism or Indian modes of music, musical practice. So these huge ideas really kind of come in a way to their natural end, you know, by 1974. And it's not that you can continue to be at that high pitch for a very long time. Indeed, the festival happening for 11 years is extremely rare in itself because these kind of big ideas happen once or twice in other spaces, other geographies, other countries, and then they, they, they couldn't do it again. So I think we have to understand that big ideas like that can't keep reinventing themselves. They can go on with the same momentum, but they can't keep reinventing themselves. And I think um, by 1973-74, from within the festival itself, the ideas have already been expressed quite a lot. 
and a high point has been reached. Now, you mentioned external factors also, like boycotts. Um, uh, that also happens, and that's a big topic in itself, which linked to political attitudes towards Iran and not the festival itself. What about internal divisions? And is that is that part of the just losing the momentum that you're talking about? It's difficult to say from outside, uh, but... There was a lot of pressure on the festival, as, as we said, both from within the state apparatus and from the intelligentsia in Iran. I think a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of um, dogmatic standoffs, and I think it all affected. It did affect the spirit mm. of um, the people who were pushing for that kind of elevated ideals and those kind of utopian ideals because they were really um, aspiring towards some kind of utopian model of cultural exchange and if you're if you're attacked a lot of course after a while um it does affect this you know the, the momentum how did the um you you earlier you talked about the secret police force right? you talked talk about sabak uh, um and i said let's come back to it uh, uh by the 1970s how how is Savak dealing with the perceived radicalism on stage at the the peak of the festival, and how's the festival dealing with Savak? I think uh, there, I, if I'm not wrong, uh, some documents have been released and published uh, back in Tehran around um, Savak attitudes to the festival. Uh, but it, I think it suffices to understand that um, the nature of the performances that happened in the festival didn't allow any intelligence service, um, or in this case, Savak, to be able to control what was happening on stage. Merely, if in, even if we consider merely for the fact that these things were not scripted, the nature of the performances that happened often happened without a script. And it was a very different, let's say, experience for Savak that uh, was used to having a play script sitting on their shelf for a few years, right. and then they would go through with red, red pen and then deliver it back. So I think we can safely say that the the space of the festival did not have censorship in it, and Savak didn't have a hand in it, and that made them quite anxious. But it's probably that I mean that's it's quite remarkable, really, that the festival can um, can escape that um, when uh, uh, we hear of the, certain artists or activists being you know jailed, etc. At that time, um, it's it's got to be a. I guess it was another one of the pressures that the festival was feeling in the 1970s. What was the, what was the overarching feeling in the final year of the festival in 1977? Can you describe it? Do you know? I think in 1977, there is this um, pig child fire, this performance that happened in 1977 and Hungarian performance that um, is what ignited a huge amount of controversy. It's a, it's a, it's a big topic to get into, but um it, um, it was a very violent um, performance in itself, and it was referring to um, Soviet aggression on Hungary. The group uh, performed uh, in the, partly in the street and partly in a shop, which, was, um, which had a window onto the street. So uh, the stage was divided between what was happening on either side of that glass and there was a sm only a small uh, number of audience inside the shop but of course people passing by could see the performance in, in the street and um, there was a, a kind of a rocking dance between this soldier and this and this um, female actress that was then said to have been um, 
outright copulation in the street, you know, intercourse happening um, in the streets of Shiraz. So this sort of controversy was very much fueled by uh, those who were against the festival. And when you open up the space of art to the street anywhere in the world, including the very day we live, you know, the, the very city where I live in, in London, you are dealing with different parameters and, you know, di different issues. So the festival was thin on the ground in terms of securing itself um, in safe spaces. But that controversy allowed religious authorities to condemn the festival, to even declare that the Hafizier better be burnt than have another concert performed in it. Right. And it allowed Ayatollah Khomeini to pounce on, on the situation. But um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Your question actually is really interesting. I haven't thought about it before. But in a way, it's kind of the nail in the coffin, right? Do you think the uh, festival programmers... And those running the festival would have known in 1977 that that was the last, the the, the last time this year as Festival of Arts is going to be staging performances. No, uh, no, not at all. Because the 1978 was programmed, and um, one of the most interesting productions that was going to come was going to be Pina Bausch. Oh. They it was programmed, but um, the uh, I think first the Ostandardi first the. Um, Governor of Fars uh, sort of declared his um, his anxiety around security, and then the festival organizers themselves also decided that um, security of um, of the international artists, the guests, as well as the audiences, is going to be a big issue, uh, and they decided to postpone it effectively, and that already um, then rolled into the revolution, and then in fact where we come back to the beginning, which is the kind of banning of the festival. It affected many artists' careers. Um, and to date, the archives have been banned, which is where I came in to piece yeah. together the puzzle yeah. and excavate the archive. And then now I'm looking to digitize it completely so that it can be available, so that actually history can judge for itself. Um, and Jean, what is really interesting um, around the conversation we've had is to understand that if Shiraz was a space of opening, both for Iranian artists, but also for Iranian artists in dialogue with the world they live in politically, but also geographically, um, post-revolution Iran has experienced so much isolation and so much closure. And, and, and in a sense, the fact that the, fe the festival is blamed for the revolution on the one hand and remains, its material remains banned on the other is really um, symbolically interesting yeah. because it represents emancipation and openness and dialogue and, and experience beyond your normal experience. What, what about decadence? How much was it sort of fairly or unfairly painted with this uh, idea of being decadent or even Western in terms of its decadence? Well, I think I think we have to um, we can safely understand that um, from a religious perspective, um, decadence is clearly defined, especially in in the Abrahamic religions. The relation between genders, the relation to the body, there are huge restrictions on you know what that is about, especially in the public sphere. So, religiously speaking, there was a very clear idea that um, the body moving in space is already. Uh, close to being um, problematic. I think the complication doesn't come so much from that angle, but it came from what you also mentioned, the West toxication issues, 
where the left, um, the kind of Stalinist left, I think their idea of theater and performance was that it has to happen by the workers for the workers. Mm -hmm. So it has to happen in factories. It has to happen in, in the fields. And there are uh, trajectories of theater and performance that do deal with that, of course. And so there was a, a kind of aesthetic resistance to the festival because they considered it superfluous to dance in the mountains or to perform against the, the ruins. So the segments of Iranian intelligentsia didn't rise to that. Right. And I think they, they were mistaken in that. But also we have to understand that just as the festival very much set out to open a space of performance in Iran, it was very aware that the space of performance was very limited in Iran. And the experience of performance was so limited in Iran. Most of our intelligentsia was how can I say, was galvanized around literature and literary criticism and political thought. And those are the people who were condemning the festival. Dare I say, they knew not much about performance. I even in the intelligentsia, there wasn't as much the experience of performance. So if we, if we get back to where we started this interview and, mm -hmm. and, and the breaking the silence and the taboo nature of even talking about the Shiraz Festival of Arts up until recently. I mean, that that speaks volumes about how disruptive it was perceived to be, how heretical, how radical. And as we also talked about at the top of the interview, there are pre-revolutionary cultural institutions in Iran, like the Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art, that survived, albeit... Mm with a very different complexion, albeit with some of the uh, artworks hidden somewhere downstairs and, and albeit with a different administration. Would continuing the Shiraz Festival, um, even after those early years of the fatwa and the let's not, not have any music, in it, would it simply be impossible given the nature of what it was? Um, great question. You know, in the work that I've done, I've placed Shiraz in a kind of a mapping of what was happening in the world. And we have to talk about the African festivals, the, f uh, the first world festival of Negro arts, 1966, which happened in Senegal. And there were quite a few Senegalese who came to the Shiraz festival. There was a link. And the 1969 Pan-African festival that happened in Algiers. And we can also talk about the Nancy festival that was in France, but it was a university-based festival and it was headed by Jacques Long. And uh, the festival in Belgrade, of all these festivals, the only one that survives into the 21st century is Belgrade. So it's not to do with Iran or Shiraz or the revolution. In fact, the 11 iterations of the Shiraz festival is in itself already really extraordinary. And I, and I, think, I think the mythologies and the, the, the stigmas and what did you call it? You called it the taboo has uh, endured. Um, in the absence of the object, in the absence of material object left from the festival. What do you think the greatest lesson we can learn as Iranians from the story of the Shiraz Festival of, of Arts is? Uh, aspiration is at the core of the festival. Mm. And that in itself is, I think, hugely valuable to for an artistic space or a nation to aspire, to be able to aspire and to have the courage to face contradiction, 
to face, um, you know, uh, stuff that is not aware of from its own past, to be put under strain, to kind of face a new world um, is is very valuable. And I think Shiraz really encapsulates aspiration and utopian ideals, the notion of dreaming, that you can dream. Mm. And I think like everything else in life, those positions are deemed dangerous by traditional forces, by conservative values, by conventional cultural values. We are natures of habit. And um, when we want to break those down, when we want to experiment, like most art forms, as you well know, uh, begin with controversy. Controversy is not uh, new to culture. It's been uh, enlightening talking to you today. I thank you so much for the time you've taken. You've been archaeologically excavating material archives relating to the festival that have been banned since 1979. Your platform is Archaeology of the Final Decade. It's a fantastic title, too. How, if people are listening to you and, and want to somehow help out with this, how can they do that? Well, we're very interested in um, making the documents available to the public. So we are interested, we are looking to raise more funds to scan and uh, digitize and make publicly available the entirety of the archive. And um, this is only one of the projects that we are doing. And uh, in that sense, both making it publicly available, but also recirculating these art histories for the sake of future generations. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Jean. It was great pleasure and um, always uh, thought-provoking for myself to go through the material. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Vali Mahluji, an Iranian-British art historian, curator, writer, and advisor. He has a new book coming out about the Shiraz Festival of Arts. The festival took place in Iran from 1967 to 77. We reached Vali Mahluji in London, England today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 8, brought to you, of course, in part by Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Producer Susan, talented Anahita Super, Parry Saponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Marai Merdad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin.